Would you please take your scriptures uh, and turn them to Luke 22, and let me run through this chapter, or this uh, scripture reading with you, and give you a little technical information about the, the text itself. <clears throat> you will remember that last week, we talked about Jesus <clears throat> saying goodbye he had the passion, and this is part of his, his last days, he had the passion, the love, such a strong love for his people, for his friends, um, that he could say goodbye to them and he could die. <clears throat> In the midst of that, right afterwards, when you would think that it was the most inappropriate time at all to start a fight, they have conflict. They have conflict among each other, they have conflict personally, and they begin to have conflict with the world. Now, the, script, the scripture goes like this in verse 24. And there, also, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now notice, when there is a vacuum of leadership, there is usually the natural inclination is to have a vine to fill that vacuum of leadership. And they are feeling now a tremendous loss, a tremendous abandonment of their leader. And so immediately they start saying, well, who ought to be the leader then? He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. That was an actual title assigned to Egyptian and Syrian kings. You could be Herod the benefactor. <clears throat> um, it was kind of a PR job because they usually took more from the people than they gave, but uh, that was a title. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest. Now here's a secret to good leadership. Always assume if you're in leadership that you can learn more than anyone else and you need to learn more than anyone else. That's the symbolism of the youngest. Don't assume that you know more than anyone else. Many times God puts you in leadership because he wants to teach you, not because he wants to teach others. He gives you kids because he wants to grow you up, not because he necessarily wants them to grow up, although that's nice too. But kids give us a chance to grow up. Um, and he does the same thing with teachers. Many times he puts you into leadership so that you can learn and you can grow. And you, okay, well, let's go on. And the leader as the servant, as if he were a servant, because he is. For who is greater? This is a, this is a question in the eyes of the world. Who is greater in the eyes of the world, parenthetically? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But he shows them another kingdom. I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he turns to Simon Peter. And he looks him in the eye. He turns to him as a representative of the rest of the disciples. And I'll show you, I'll show you here in a minute. 
Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the you there is plural. It means all of you. And I want you to notice this about Satan. Satan is not like the world. The world attacks and is concerned just with the weakest point. Um, animals will attack a herd. They will attack a baby or they will attack a lame animal and they will, they will feast on the lame animal. They will go after the strong one. But Satan is not satisfied with Judas. He's already got Judas. He's not satisfied with Judas. Satan goes after leadership. He will go after the leadership of the family. He will go after the leadership of the church. He will go after any kind of leadership because when you pull down leadership, you do a lot to pull down the rest of the, found, or the, rest of the uh, family, don't you? So he'll go after leadership, and that's exactly what he's doing here. And Jesus is warning him. Satan has demanded permission to sift you, all of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Romans 8, 34. Christ is in heaven to make intercession for us. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now in Greek, there is uh, an implication here that it says, not that it won't fail, that, but that it won't go into total extinction when you fail. Now there's a difference there. Most of us, after we become, well, all of us, after we become Christian, fail. And we fail knowingly. Now, when you fail, something strange happens to you. The first thing you start doing is start questioning yourself. Well, I must not have been a spiritual person like I thought I was. Or maybe I was not a Christian like I thought I was. You question yourself. Then you begin to question the faith as a whole. Maybe it was not real happens to us all. So there's an intimidation factor of failure. And Jesus is saying, I have prayed that you may, that your faith, whereas, whereas I know it'll be knocked down, I know it will be knocked down, I have prayed that your faith will not become totally extinct because as long as you have enough faith as a grain of mustard seed, you got all you need. So if there is any inclination at all in you that, well, I don't know if I buy in all this stuff, but I want to believe. That's enough. That's enough for God to use. That's enough for God to restore. That's enough for God to turn you around. That's enough. That's all you need. I don't know if I believe enough anymore. You don't believe anymore. You don't have to know if you believe anymore. All you have to have is just a little voice that says, I wish I could. That's enough. Okay? So, as long as there's that. And Jesus prayed that there would be that remaining. Now, watch this. When once you have turned again, he not only predicted his failure, he predicted his return. Parents, you can predict your fail your, the failure of your children, can't you? You can also predict their return. If you're praying for them, if you, have, if you have done everything you can to put a genuine faith, because you have had a genuine faith into their lives, you can predict their return. When once you come back, strengthen your brothers. Now, the, the Greek word is sterizo. It sounds like steroids, doesn't it? Strengthen your brothers. As a matter of fact, we get there. No, we don't. Um, 
It means confirm them, affirm them, say a, a word to them that they are on the right track. Okay? In other words, the strategy for helping a failure in faith is to help someone else confirm their faith. You understand? Now, let's read on. And he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go to both prison and to death. In other words, I would never deny you. He says that in another recording of the gospel. I would never deny you. Could I just ask you this? To watch it whenever you say, I would never. Anytime you say, I'll never. Guess what? You are a target. You might as well just draw concentric circles on yourself. You might as well just say, go ahead, hit me right here. I will never. Go ahead, I'll give you the target. Because either Satan or God's going to aim at you, one way or the other. Because you set up a challenge, haven't you? You've, you've just stuck your tongue out, haven't you? Say, oh, yeah, try and get me to. I talked with Lon Garber this week. He said, I spent more time in my life following up on things I just thought I'd never do, <laughs> you know, it's because, you know, I'll never be a part of a big church. Well, where are you this morning? I'll ne- you know, I'll never be in church leadership again. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I'd never... D- Listen, take a lesson from Peter. Don't make proclamations that are going to be a part of the stumbling. All right? Now, Jesus said... I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know of me. And he said to him, when I, or he said to them, now he's shifting one more time, said to them, when I sent you without a purse and a bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along likewise a bag and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one for i tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressions for that or with the transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment and they said look here are two swords and he said to them it is enough There are three areas of conflict when you feel a lack of leadership. And all of them have to do with an inner fear. And all of the principles in these three things are the same. Initiation. Take the offense. Go get them. All of them. None of these things are defensive. Now people argue over that sword thing, and we'll get to that in a minute. It could be that Jesus just said that all all that's required is two swords so that we can be numbered with the transgressors in order to fulfill Isaiah 53, which predicted the coming of the Messiah. But he was talking about something much deeper than that. And the sword is an offensive offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. So, So just hang with me a minute and we'll walk through this. First thing that happens when leadership goes out of your life. When the Lord Jesus Christ was once in your life and you turn around and He doesn't seem to be there anymore, is that you feel a fear. You want to replace Him with something. If there 
used to be a conversation with him and now there is silence, you will tend to want to elect somebody else to that spot. Or you will tend to wonder if you just ought to take over that spot yourself. And Jesus is saying, look, don't worry about where you are in the group. See, when we have collective activity, leadership is very important. But what they were trying to do is figure out where their spot was and what they would get out of it. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of a group, don't take the angle. And if you want to relay a lie fear that you will not be a part of a group, don't ask yourself, who's going to elevate me? How will I get up here so that I can be recognized by everybody? That won't happen. That can't happen but one per, to one or two people in a whole group. So therefore, it's self-defeating behavior. When will people recognize me that I am a valid human being? Doesn't happen. Not many people get that kind of confirmation. So what's his strategy? His strategy is, I'll tell you how to feel part of a group. You take the initiative to serve. Don't sit there and wait for somebody to affirm you and then be hurt when they don't. If when you walk out of here today, there are gonna be probably 50 people in here who don't have anybody to speak to. And probably 45 of them will be waiting, just kinda hanging around, hoping somebody says something to them. And if nobody says anything to them, they're gonna walk out of here and they're gonna say, well, that's an unfriendly church. To many, it will never occur to them that the other 49 people were just as lonely as they were and would just as much have appreciated that they would come up and just say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Nice to meet you. Where do you live? Do you live around here? Why are you waiting in line to get out? Do you live around here? Just a kind word. How do you become a part of a group? That's how you become a part of a group. You seek to serve one another. You seek to mean something to someone else. Somebody from, from the school called me this week and said, I've got these two kids who are so lonely. They're new. They have no friends. They're isolated. What do I tell them to do? It was easy. I said, you tell them to look for someone else that's isolated, someone else that's sitting alone, and then go up and introduce themselves to that kid because that kid's hurting just as bad. Jesus is saying, look, it's important that you give someone else what they need and then you will find that you have what you need. It's just that simple. Here's an old story. I'm sure you've heard it, but I'm going to tell it again because it fits so well. About the guy that dies and goes up to heaven, there's two doors. One says heaven, one says hell. He's real curious. There's no windows or anything. Real curious. And he wants to go to heaven, of course, but he's just real curious about what hell's like. So he says, thinks to himself, man, if I can just peek in this door, you know, and then just slam it shut, you know. So he does. He peeks in the door, and there's this long banquet table, just like it says. You know, you sit at me, with me at my father's table. Long banquet table filled with delicious food. And all around that banquet table are chairs, and in those chairs are sitting people who are starving to death. 
They're starving to death because they don't have any arms. All they have is little hands growing out of their shoulders. And all they have to eat with are long-handled spoons. And so they try to scoop the spoon under the food and somehow get it in their mouth and it's a mess all over the place and the hungrier they get the more they try to get food and the more the food flies and the more they can't get any and the more they starve to death. Well it's a horrible sight and he slams the door. Then he goes over to heaven's door and he opens it up and you know what he sees? The same scene exactly. Long table, surrounded by chairs, facing a wonderful feast. People with hands, long-handled spoons, but all of them joking and laughing, all of them well-fed. The difference is that they're taking their spoons and feeding each other. Now look, all God is saying to us is that we will never get our needs for security met by trying to find ourselves a place in people's affirmation routine. We need to go to them and take the initiative to serve And then somehow the group will make it through. You don't need to be affirmed by a leader. You don't need to be a leader. You need to be a servant and watch what God does in your spirit. Secondly, he said, look, when there is a sense of no more leadership or an an absence of spiritual leadership or an absence of spiritual intervention, you're going to get insecure. And you're going to worry about your own identity. And you're going to begin to wonder whether or not you really had it or whether or not you were really a Christian in the first place. You're going to face fear. You know what I want you to do? I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to charge into that problem. Because look who he's asking for for Peter to strengthen. Peter goes out and totally disgraces himself. And then he points him back to the very group that would be the most embarrassing for Peter to face. And he he not only does that, he doesn't doesn't even tell him to go go back and ask for forgiveness. He says, go back and strengthen them. Walk in there like you've got something. Like you've got something to give them. You walk in with your confidence and you give it to them. This is a guy who just failed. (laughs) What's he saying? He's saying, if you've got a problem, and it's your problem, and God's not solving it for you, and it's nobody else's problem, and it's coming at you, charge it. I mean, run at it. When I was a little kid, I had absolutely no coordination, and that has stayed with me all my life. <laughs> but I played baseball because everybody else was playing baseball. And I got on this team, and, uh, you know, I was... I had no coordination, but they, they let me play, and they put me in right field, you know, where I couldn't hurt myself too bad. And uh, we had a great coach. I can't even remember what his name was. It's so long ago. I was so young. But uh, 
he knew that I had no, absolutely no confidence in myself for good reason. Yeah, I was realistic, and uh, there was an infielder that got sick. And uh, I don't know how I ended up in the infield, whether everybody was, else was too smart to go in there. I was just, I've always been a little stupid, too. So I maybe just said, Hunter, you want, I don't know how I ended up in there, but there I was in the infield. And, and they hit balls hard in the infield, and, they, and they're fast. And, <laughs> and, you know, when you're in the infield, and you, and you can see the fields back then, weren't like the fields. I mean, they had big rocks in them and pits, and the balls that hit things, and they bounce everything. You could never tell which way a ball was going to ricochet. Never. And so, you know, after you watch about the umpteenth one go through your, the, the coach says, well, get down on one knee and don't let it go through. Don't, you know, get your body in front of it, you know, which is French for sacrifice yourself <laughs> for this ball game. So I said, well, okay, you know, and so here I am, the balls are coming at me and they're whizzing by me and I'm going like this. I'm just wondering where I'm going to get hit next. And I was just a mess, bruises all over me. Golly, and here they it just bounce towards me and go, He came out and said, Hunter, let me teach you something. He said, when a ball is hit to you on the ground, I want for your first reaction to be to charge that ball. I said, oh, I get it. The ball's not coming hard enough at me. I've got to run and run into it. Is that that what you're telling me here? He said, no. He said, you know, the ball's going to bounce wherever it bounces anyhow. You don't need to wait for it to bounce. It's going to have its normal bounces. But when you charge a ball, it puts you in charge of the ball. That's what I'm telling you. You're, the, problem you're getting, the problem with you getting hit is because you're so afraid. And so the ball takes control over you. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you start to run after a ball that's hit to you, it doesn't matter where it bounces, you're going to be in charge. Well, I did it. And I felt totally... This is the same coach who, if a kid clutched when he was up to bat, he'd say, come here, tell you what to do. I want you to do. I want you to go out and I want you to swing at the first three pitches. I don't care where they are. I don't care if you have to jump up in the air, trying to touch the ball with the end of your bat, I want you to swing. And the kid would do it, strike out immediately, come back and says, I want you to do the next, same thing next time you get up. So that a kid knew that swinging was a normal activity. Finally, it got to be hilarious. I mean, it didn't matter where we were in the game. It was just a matter that a kid could finally uncork at a ball and finally participate in baseball instead of being cowered by baseball. And pretty soon he had some good hitters, you know? Jesus is saying the same thing. When a ball's coming to you, if it's your ball, you can't fix every problem in the world. Don't be running around trying to get somebody else's ball. But if it's coming to you and it's on the ground, you charge it. You go after it. Because otherwise, it's just going to smack you. And what good is that going to do? Take the initiative. Take the offense. He said, when you face the world, look, I sent you out in the ministry. You didn't need food or money or anything like that. You made out okay, didn't you? Yeah, we made out okay. Well, I'll tell you what. 
when I get crucified, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be a whole different world. Sell your cloak to buy yourself a sword. A cloak was for protection, wasn't it? A cloak is to shield you from the elements. The sword is an offensive weapon. Now, he's not talking physical offense. I mean, the guys go, okay, we got two swords. And Jesus goes, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, it's enough. Not two swords. Swords, guys. He's talking in an attitude. You're going to be persecuted. I want you to take the offense like you have something positive. Because you do. I mean, how many people feel like becoming Christians when they go, Oh, those Christians, you guys are nerds. Well, we, I get, well, we don't mean to be. We're just trying to help. And, I mean, we're not doing any crimes or anything like that. You know, does that make you really want to run out and join up Christian? I mean, is that how you think Jesus is? Good heavens. The Lord God of hosts? No. It is imperative that spiritually we know that the Satan who would intimidate him, us, and by the way, that's his only power. He's already been defeated at the cross. The only power Satan has is intimidation. So only, the only thing he's got going against us is our own fear. That's it. But if he gets somebody who will talk back, who will say, yeah, I got a problem coming my way, and you know what I'm doing? I'm charging it. I'm going after it. I'm not waiting for it to get here. I'm going after it. What for, oh, what's he got left? He's got nothing left. And if we try to manage the world on its own terms, we will always lose. When I was playing football, that was one sport that didn't require any coordination. My boys have heard this story 500 times, and I go, I'm, I'm sure they want to crawl into a pew, but, but I, we were playing Ashland, and they had a great team. They had a wonderful back. Roosevelt Robinson was his name, and they had another tremendous lineman, like all-state quality. This guy, I weighed 145 pounds, soaking wet, but I put in the, in the football program that I weighed 160 just to scare, just to scare people, you know. <laughs> and this Stan Arnholt weighed 268 pounds. The biggest guy on our team weighed 210 pounds. 268 pounds. I played on the line. They had a 6-2 defense. Guess who played right across from me? Stan Arnold, that guy was a mountain. And I had watched him before in films. I mean, they took films of everything. And I'd seen his, this forearm. He just had this forearm that come up against your helmet, knock your helmet back like just see stars. And so I got this strategy going into it. I said, well, you know, I was, I was pretty intimidated, obviously. And I was thinking, well, maybe if I could just kind of stay out of his way and just kind of hit at the side of him, you know, then maybe I can just kind of, coax him and we can dance, you know, out of the way. First play, I got down and I was shaking like this. I was so scared. And sure enough, here comes that forearm. Boom! And he just walked over me. The only reason he didn't get the ball carried is because there was a quick trap up the center. I mean, he was in the, he was in the backfield going. 
just looking around like, man, they should have put a lineman on me. I don't... Well, I knew I had to do something else. So I went up next play. And <laughs> this is before I was a Christian. I said, <laughs> I looked over at him, and I looked up at him like this, and there's a big cheek sticking out of there. I said, Stan. Yeah. I said, you're a fat pig. <laughs> oh, man, you should have seen his eyes. His eyes just so like a... And then I did this. This is worse. Don't ever do this. I said, is your mama that fat? Oh, baby, you want to kill me? You can just, oh, you just want to kill me. You couldn't wait. Oh, boy, he got down on all fours. And he's just trembling like this. He's just going like this. See? And he just plowed into me. And I just kept bumping, 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 bumping as hard as I could. All night long, I'd come up and just be, hey, Stan, who tied your cleats for you for the game? You can't bend over that far. Man, all night long, I just played with his mind. I mean, I was was on the offense, wasn't I? I was offensive. I got offensive with the guy. (laughs) Real offensive. And you know how many tackles he got on? He didn't get one tackle. He beat me to a pulp all night long. Never paid attention to the ball carrier. Never did. Never even noticed we were playing football after that. Just wanted to get to me. See? Well, look. The only thing, the only power Satan has over you is your, your own fear. You know? Go up and stick your tongue out at him. Just say, sucker, you got nothing on me, you bobo head. You can't have me. You cannot have me. If you've got a problem, and it's coming your way, and it's on the ground, it's not up in the air, see? Now, if it's up in the air, you've got to kind of see where it's going to land. You've got to get, but it's coming, you're coming straight for you, you know there's absolutely no avoidance. Charge it. Go after it. Because that will take care of the fear that you have inside. You charging it will put you in charge of it. It is so important. It is so important. One more story. And then we'll pray. There's a painting somewhere. I love this. There's a painting somewhere that has pictured Satan playing chess with a young boy. And in the painting, Satan has just moved his player into a position where this young boy's queen cannot escape. There is no way out of that situation. And Satan just is removing his hand from that player and grimacing at this kid. Like, sucker, the next play your mind. And there's this little kid with all this fear on his face because he he knows he's doomed. For years, people walked by that picture and got depressed. Till one day, there was a chess master 
who stood in front of that picture and he looked at it. And the first thing he did was to look for all of the different possible moves that the boy's queen could make. And yes, sure enough, there was no escape. Then the idea came. And he talked to the boy in a picture and he said, but it's your move. Anytime Satan has you cornered, it's your move. Anytime you are open to him, he is open to you. Anytime you are vulnerable to Him, He is vulnerable to you. It's your turn. It's your turn. And if you've got a problem in your life of spiritual proportions, of spiritual dimensions, there are sins that we need to escape. There are sins we need to walk away from. But when it comes to to facing Satan, we don't walk away from that one. Because when we walk away, we live in fear all of our lives. You face him. And you say to him, it's my turn. You can't have me. Come on, sucker. I'm taking you on. Pray with me. Lord, we want to confess that there are times that we get angry with you for seemingly leaving us to ourselves, for not intervening for us, for not fixing our lives. There are times when we are so frustrated because we pray and pray for your direction and we get no answer. And we will search for the answers with all other people. And they have no good answers. They don't know what we need. You're the only one and you still remain silent and distant, and that frustrates us. Would you remind us that it is in those times that you are saying to us, it's your turn? You take the step. You make the difference. You grow up. You solve this problem. And even if we can't solve it, Lord, even if we don't have the answer, help us to take one step toward it, just one step, so that we're not cowering and backing away, so that it does not have dominance over our spirits. As we think of the things in our lives right now that we need to do, We just need to head toward them, and we need to take care of them. We ask you to not let Satan into this deliberation and not let us do anything against your will or against your word. But, Lord, we have problems that are of his making, and he's trying to sift us like wheat. Help us to face him and to take the step that will back him up. The Bible says if we resist Satan, he will flee from us. Help us to 
walk right up to him and watch him run. In Jesus' name, amen.